Let's ask for God's help as we open the word this morning. So would you join me in praying? Father, as we open your word together this morning, how thankful we are that you have breathed it out for our blessing. It is not simply a record of facts about you, but it is the story of your great work in creating us, in rescuing us, in redeeming, in forgiving, in adopting, in securing, in finishing this work so that throughout the ages, as the Apostle Paul writes, we as your people will remain a testimony to your great kindness and grace that you have saved us from our sins. We need to understand more of you today and more of your great work and how we are called to participate with you by faith. We just sang, by faith we'll stand on your promises. And there are many. But all of your promises, as you have taught us in your word, all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. He's the great fulfillment of these things. And so in him, uh, all of this teaching and reading and studying and growing that we are doing right now, it's all centered in him. So help us to see Jesus as he is. And I ask, Father, that you would correct any of those just false ideas we have either created out of our own imaginations concerning Jesus or perhaps even things that we've heard at some point or read that really are not accurate. We want to submit our hearts and our minds to you because you alone are authoritative and your word is authoritative for us. How thankful we are today that we can come together in your name, worshiping, loving, fellowshipping, just enjoying one another. And how thankful we are this morning for our children's workers. Even as we watch all those young ones head out, we know that they are being cared for so well that teachers and nursery workers and others have given themselves, given their very hearts to the care and discipleship of our children. And we thank you for them. Would you bless them even at this time as they open the word? as they seek to care for uh, the children of our church, would you bless them with strength and wisdom and understanding and may they even know our gratitude for them. We're thankful for the many things that you're doing here. Grateful for the way that you are changing us and helping us to grow into likeness to Jesus. So would you continue that work here this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine named Rick has written a helpful article on the Christian life. I met Rick a number of years ago while he was transitioning from one ministry position into another. And uh, for those of you who might be curious about that type of thing, he has served as a pastor in a couple of settings. At this particular moment, he is what we would call a, a biblical counselor. And so he spends his life helping people work through, even wrestle through some of the challenges that are common to all of us, but he does it with his Bible open and always seeking to point people to Jesus because he's the ultimate solution for all of our 
struggles and problems and challenges, our faults, uh, and those things that just really seem to weigh us down. In this particular article, he includes a portion of his personal journey of faith. He did not grow up in a Christian home in the way that some of you have, but he was brought to that place where he realized he needed Jesus as his Savior. He needed the forgiveness that God offers through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And shortly after he was regenerated, that's the particular term that he uses in this article, and it's a good one. It's a Bible term, being brought to life through the power of God. Rick writes, I found a church community, and within that community, I began to perceive a peculiar set of customs. Here are a few examples. All the men wore suits to the church meetings. Everyone carried a King James Version Bible to those meetings. We attended meetings three times a week, plus another night for organized door knocking to tell people about Jesus. On non-church days, we wore long pants and other clothes that covered 95% of our bodies. I learned another language. For example, everybody's name began with either brother or sister. We did not drink alcohol. We did not listen to any music other than Christian, but only our approved kind, and he put that in quotation marks, our approved kind of Christian music. We had no close friends who were not part of our brand of Christianity. John MacArthur, who some of you would recognize as a a preacher of the gospel that God has used for many, many years, he says John MacArthur was a liberal, and John Calvin, a, a dead theologian and pastor, was a heretic. Some of you probably hear that and say, ooh, that's a little close to home. Uh, You may have grown up in something like that. But listen, and and Rick is actually not trying to pick on this group. He's actually trying to to take our thoughts and hearts to a very place where we're going to go in Mark 7 in just a moment. But listen to how Rick continues. There was more. There was much more. There was much, much more. There were lists, many lists. Each person had a unique list. I became a good student of the Bible and my Christian culture, even though there were times when those two things did not relate well to each other. And, listen to this, as those things began to separate, that is what Scripture actually taught and what Christian culture was requiring and demanding of him, he said, my heart and practice began to live two different lives. I privately read, processed, and reflected on God's word. I publicly made sure I was conforming to the expectations of the Christian community, regardless of how it conflicted with my Bible reflections. Over time, I masked my most authentic identity because I did not want my Christian community to think I was something other than what was unanimously accepted, approved, and supported by the community. That worldview made me a dichotomized Christian. The more I learned the ropes of religion, the more incongruent I became on the inside with what I presented on the outside. Over time, I became comfortable at the masquerade ball, always knowing there was another kind of me on the inside. My irrepressible fear was that the clock would strike midnight and I would be found out for who I was. I wish you could meet Rick. I love this man dearly. He was very helpful to me personally. He was helpful in a couple of challenging uh, situations I was working with uh, in the last ministry I came from. This is a man who knows God and seeks to walk with him, and he is not 
recounting these things to pick on the church that he came from. And I, I know that church, and God has used them in, in really significant ways. Rick is simply trying to share what he was experiencing, and this is not uncommon to religious groups across the board. There's something that frequently develops in communities of faith, and I'm using that term very broadly, even communities of faith that would stand outside of the the biblical model and teaching and even tradition of the Old and the New Testament teaching. There is something that begins to develop in, in in religious communities that are zealous to be faithful, zealous to be obedient, zealous to be uh, even fruitful in the kind of ministry that can become an ugly distortion of what was originally intended. And so Rick's testimony is common for many individuals and many groups. I suspect there may be some of you here this morning who live with a similar irrepressible fear, as Rick describes it, that the clock will strike midnight on your current religious practice and that you might be found out for who you really are, and that's terrifying to you. And so whether it be the term masquerade ball, as he applies it to the Christian life he was living then, or masking his authentic identity, as he had written earlier in a paragraph, these are all things that begin to evoke images and even descriptions of a kind of lifestyle that is not only a dichotomy, but there's another term for it. It's called hypocrisy. And no one wants to be a hypocrite. As a matter of fact, we may despise hypocrisy more than any other character flaw. And yet at the same time, struggle with it more intensely on a personal level than any other flaw. You know, Jesus, in this next portion of Mark 7, is is actually, in love, going to call out some hypocrites. Now, even before we read this text, I want to cast it in this larger context. He's going to speak very directly, and and his words will even hurt. And it feels uh, like a confrontation when we read it. I can only imagine what it must have felt like in that moment. Probably there were some of his own disciples who were very uncomfortable, maybe even thinking to themselves, oh, Lord, you, sh- you should back off of this a little bit. And if you read, I think it's Matthew's account, they'll even come to Jesus later and say, you know the scribes and Pharisees were really offended by what you said. So Jesus doesn't hesitate to offend them, but part of that is because he loves them enough to speak the truth about what they really are. And if they would receive it, he would also help them see there is a solution to this. Something more than just saying, I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore. Something that is so transformational that it would bring a consistency between what you are inside and what you portray on the outside. And that's the point God wants every one of us to be living at. So there's no dichotomy between what you might sing or read or pray in a context like this and what you sing or read or even think about on Monday. There's this beautiful continuity between your public worship and your private worship. There's a beautiful continuity between the way you would talk in the church and the way you would converse in the neighborhood the rest of the week. There's continuity across life because there's no need for you to put on a mask. 
There's no need for a masquerade. And that's the point that Jesus longs to take every one of us. Now, open your Bibles to Mark 7. If you're not there already, some of you have been here for a number of weeks and you were anticipating this. I'm going to read the first five verses. And uh, as we do, as you can see from the title that I've put up on the screen, what Jesus is seeking to do is unmask religious hypocrisy that he could actually bring a transformation uh, to these very ones who are prisoners. They don't think they are. They don't see themselves in this way, but they really are bound up in this. So let's begin reading in Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, and we'll go uh, initially through verse 5 and make a few comments and then pick up the rest of this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And notice a a parenthetical thought here. Mark is actually giving an explanation. A little sidebar here. Mark's gospel was written primarily for Gentiles. So many of them would not have been familiar with the Jewish practices of that particular day. So that's why verse 3, Mark writes, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now back to the big point and the, and the main point of this story. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now there you have it. And this is the question that prompts this confrontation. Jesus never shies away from these things, does he? Matt made the point earlier in our study in, in uh, Mark's gospel that Jesus is fearless. And when you know that you're in right relationship uh, vertically, and in his case he is, he is not only the son of God, but he is the son who is, who is in perfect fellowship with God the Father. He's in right relationship with everyone else around him. He has nothing to hide, nothing to back down on. Uh, he, he will speak the truth very directly. And so they come to him and they ask this very significant question. They're asking about why his disciples would eat with hands that were defiled, verse 2 says. That means ritually unclean. They're not worried about physical bacteria or viruses uh, that might give you a little uh, stomach issue to deal with. No, they're, they're worried about a spiritually significant practice that was in force at that particular moment. Hand washing had become a spiritual act of dedication to the Lord. Listen to what one author writes of, giving us a little historical background. As Judaism's encounter with Gentile culture increased in the post-exilic period, that is, after Israel had been sent into exile and then brought out and they began to rebuild Jerusalem in those several hundred years leading up to the time of Christ, that's what we're talking about, the question of ritual cleanliness took on new significance as a way of maintaining Jewish purity over against Gentile culture. And next to the Qumran community, the Pharisees were the most scrupulous sect of Judaism with regard to matters of uncleanness. As a matter of fact, if you study this out, the term Pharisee has as its root idea uh, the concept of being separate from all these other groups. So the Pharisees prided themselves in the fact that they maintained a a level of, of spiritual cleanliness and purity and piety that nobody else 
except that weird little group down near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the Qumran community, except those people. And the Pharisees would have said, and we know they're all nuts, right? So these are some of the people who are coming to Jesus at this particular time saying, what's up? We see your disciples eating with unwashed hands. This is a big deal to them. Another author goes on to write, unclean for Pharisaic rabbis were any form of human excretion. And so just, you know, you who have toddlers in your household, you will never be spiritually clean. Women after childbirth, corpses, carrion, creeping things, idols, and certain classes of people such as lepers, Samaritans, and Gentiles. This list implicates both Jesus and the disciples of several earlier violations of ritual uncleanness. Think back through our study in Mark's gospel. Hasn't Jesus been with lepers and touched them? Hasn't Jesus ministered to tax collectors and Gentiles? Remember the woman with the issue of blood that he touched and healed and and brought her back into this sweet physical and spiritual restoration? Hasn't he been at the bedside of Jairus' daughter when she was dead and laid his hands on her and touched her? You see, he's violating everything that these Pharisees would have been wildly paranoid about. And in their estimation, for Jesus to continue to do these things and interact with these people and then not even take time to wash his hands before a meal is the verification that he really is not serious about his relationship with God. Now, I know that's crazy to us in many ways. But this is the context of this question. So eating with unwashed hands is a sign of spiritual failure for them. There's a second thing in the text here, and it's actually more important than just not washing your hands. And that is, as verse 5 says, their seeming disregard of the elders' tradition. They're disregarding the tradition of the elders. Now, again, I need to give you a little background in history so you can just feel the, the weight of this, the tension of this. Look at verse 5 again. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Now that tradition was becoming a formal body of material. Initially it was just the oral tradition that was passed down as the, the scribes, as rabbis studied the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah in particular, they, and, and rightly so, early on it was a legitimate effort. They want to know, what does God mean? What do these commands entail? How do we live them out? And anybody who is serious about understanding the Word of God, who studies it, wants to get it off the page into real-world living, right? I mean, that's part of the reason we're here today, I hope. Because honestly, there are better entertainment options than being in church, I mean, I want to make this as lively and engaging as possible, but I also know some of this is really hard to, to hang with. That's why some of you have a little glaze over your eyes right now. Your eyelids are really heavy. And I remember, even as a kid, sitting in church, sometimes thinking, when will he be done? Okay? Hopefully, though, somewhere in your heart is this desire to know what God's Word means so you can, so you can first of all, believe it and then live it. And that's what the teachers initially were doing. So they developed this body of interpretation, this oral tradition, and some of it was actually starting to be recorded at this particular time. It will eventually become a body of, of literature uh, that they will call the Mishnah. It's not scripture, but it's really spiritually meaty interpretation and application. 
And so these Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus very concerned that the tradition is being violated. Let me tell you just a little bit about um, what we talked about ritual hand-washing already. Here's a copy of, you could actually purchase a copy of the Mishnah today. Now this, this was not what they would have had in that day. For starters, they weren't printing books uh, in those days. But just so you can visualize some of this. The, the Mishnah was believed to preserve an unbroken chain of authorized tradition extending from Moses to the great synagogue of Jesus' day. The Mishnah, this author writes, called the oral interpretation a fence around the Torah. What's the Torah? That's God's law. Just think the, the five books of Moses, for starters. So because they were serious about that, they recognized, well, we don't want to disobey God at any particular point. We want to keep all of his commands. And sometimes you build fences uh, to protect the, the real thing. Some of you do that, again, with, with toddlers. You have fences that you put in certain doorways, and it's maddening when they either reach a point or they get smart enough where they can get over that fence. And so the fence is not the thing. It's what you're trying to protect that child from, or you just don't want them to have access to something else that's on the other side because they're not ready for the responsibility or there's an actual danger there. Well, that's what was happening spiritually. They're building fences. But over time, the fence became the thing. We're going to see an example of this in just a moment. So the fence being understood as preservation of the integrity of the written law by, listen to this, elaborating every conceivable implication of it. Can you imagine just trying to sit around and say, okay, let's just take the first commandment. We worship God alone. No other gods before him. And we start trying to think of all the possible contingencies and options and, and even in a group this size, we could probably come up with several hundred before lunchtime. And then somebody's like, well, we got to write those down. And everybody here needs to remember all 272 things we just came up with. And you'd walk out of here like this nervous, paranoid wreck. Well, that's kind of the culture that Jesus had stepped right into. In general, the Torah was understood as policy. Its commandments declared what God decreed, but not always how they were to be fulfilled. Let me skip over just a couple of thoughts here. And so the, the prescriptions were in infinite detail how the intent of the Torah might ought to be fulfilled. And it reached this particular point where the tradition of the elders tended to shift the center of gravity from the intent of God's law to an increasing array of peripheral matters that either obscured or perverted that intent. And at this particular point in, Jesus, in the days of Jesus' ministry, it is on uh, historical record or it's understood that there belief, the Pharisees and scribes believe that to be opposed to the word of the scribes is worthy of greater punishment than to be opposed to the word of the Bible. That's how it had morphed. So you can understand why Jesus uh, would have been really passionate about a moment like this. You can understand why the gloves would come off. Because these were people who, though a couple of hundred years before... The, the rabbis and scribes who preceded them really did have good motive. Let's understand the word of God and then let's rightly live it. But then as the, the points of application were being recorded, multiple generations began to take those points of application and essentially inscripturate them, elevate them to the level of God's word. And, and over time, all of that displaces God's word. 
And so this second failure, if I go back, disregarding the tradition of the elders, um, that's a really big deal to them because they feel like their word is more authoritative than even the Bible itself. So that's the confrontation that is setting up. Now let's look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person, ultimately, who wears a mask. It's one who acts or speaks under a feigned character. I found this definition very helpful. A hypocrite is one who voices lofty and even noble sentiments that are divorced from the intentions of the heart. And then I even added this little phrase, and the realities of life. That's the dichotomy that Rick spoke of in his article. And sometimes people intend to be that, and other times they just kind of slip into this place where it's kind of like, how did I get here where there is this, this great divide? A hypocrite is one who voices lofty and even noble sentiments that are divorced from the intentions of the heart and realities of life. In this case, the Pharisees and scribes are using their concern about the violations of the traditions of elders that had to do with spiritual cleanness, but what they really want to do is find a way to destroy Jesus. That's going to become increasingly evident as we work our way through Mark's gospel. They're also trying to protect their way of religion. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, saying, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Do you see? That's, that's the heart of hypocrisy. They say we love God. They say we love his word. They say we want to worship him and please him, but their hearts are actually far, far away. And so the charge of hypocrisy emphasizes the contradiction between what a man seems to be in the opinion of his peers and what he is before God. And it actually is an act of love that Jesus steps into the middle of these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, and he begins to pull the mask off of this charade. He begins to say to them in so many ways, stop masquerading. You act like you love God. You act like you love his word. But the reality is the way you are living demonstrates you do not. So now let's continue reading in Mark 7. We read verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, and again, because that would have been a foreign concept to Gentile readers, Mark puts this little explanation in parentheses, that is, what is korban? That is something given to God. A gift that you make to him. Now verse 12. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now here. Here is both the practice and the effect of hypocrisy. 
First of all, just going back to the basic definition, it, it's wearing a mask. And in this case, it's a religious mask. Second of all, did you notice this? Jesus says, your worship is in vain. Oh, they're there. Every time the, the doors of the synagogue are open, they're there. Every time there's a high Jewish feast, they're in Jerusalem, making the appropriate sacrifices, saying the particular prayers, offering the particular psalms that, that would have been part of that tradition. There's so much about it that actually is rooted even in the Old Testament scriptures, but their worship is empty. It actually has no value because there's a heart issue. You worship in vain. Number three, they actually reject the commands of God. Now, I'm sure this had to stun them because scribes and Pharisees are all about the word of God, supposedly. But the reality is, at this point, it's actually all about the tradition of what other rabbis and scribes have said the word of God is saying. Do you see the difference? Let, let me illustrate it this way. You... Lord, God willing, you have a Bible open in front of you. Some have printed copies. Some of you have it up on your phone. We've got it up on the screen here at those particular times. We're reading it. But you know what? If, if we never opened the Bible and you came in here Sunday after Sunday, and we had the Bible present, but I basically just spend the whole time telling you what God said, but we never read it together. We never actually try to interpret the actual words of Scripture. At, at the end of my days as a pastor, all I would have done is to give you the, the tradition of what Danny Brooks thinks the Bible is about. And then let's say I die and you put me in the ground and I return to death, dust just like God said would happen and somebody else here uh, resumes. And again, the Bible just remains closed, but, but there's a fair amount of, well, remember when Danny taught us and he said and and those are really helpful things, but I have a few things to add to it. And so the Bible stays closed, but we talk a lot of, about God and his truth and how we're going to be faithful to him. And generation by generation, the Bible remains closed, but we just add layer upon layer of, of man-made understanding, application, traditions. That's exactly where these people uh, were and exactly what had led them to reject the commands of God. That's what the word leave, the commandment of God, verse 8, and hold to the tradition of men is all about. I just want to interject this too. Look at verse 8. You hold to the tradition of men. That's a description of holding fast. The problem with these people is not lack of zeal or commitment religiously. And that's rarely the problem with religious people. So Jesus is not confronting them because they have lack of commitment. It's what they're committed to. You know, there are many religions in the world with zealous, committed followers. And some of the difficulty and struggle that my friend Rick had was actually in a Baptist context. Some of you have grown up in a Catholic context. A lot of good, pe good people there, committed people. But some of them never actually have been taught to open the Bible or bother to open the Bible, and it's just it's religious motions and traditions that we go through. We could say the same thing about large segments of 
Islam, or Mormonism. I mean, you take any of the major religions of the world and you're going to find people who are zealous, but it's not according to truth. There is a difference. As a matter of fact, there's a difference that makes, that has all the, the bearing on where you spend eternity. Where does departure from the commandments of God and holding fast to the tradition of men inevitably lead us? Well, look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 8 speaks of, of a departure, neglecting or omitting, but this actually seems to be a little more proactive that now because they're so committed to the traditions, they actually have to reject the commandment of God. And I want you to let the force of Jesus' words settle into your heart for just a moment. You know, sometimes when a person begins to realize that his worship is empty and his religion is little more than man-made tradition, he will double down on religious zeal. That's where these people were. That's where some of us have been. Because inside you feel like, this cannot be as problematic as it feels at this moment. Surely, these people behind me in history that I respect and have profited from, surely they couldn't be wrong about these things. And so we doubled down in our religious zeal, guarding even more tenaciously the, the traditions that we've been given. But when we are doing that, we're doing exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. And Jesus said it. Look in verse 9 again. You reject the commandment of God in order to establish or guard your tradition. And so what these people thought actually honored God and secured an entrance into Messiah's kingdom actually leads them further away from it. And to put it back in its context, so they're, so they're there washing their hands before they eat because if, if they've contacted some kind of defilement in the marketplace, as Mark said earlier, and they, they rubbed up against Gentiles who are not God-fearing people, and maybe now I've been corrupted, and God, I want to show you how sincere and earnest I am, so I'm washing my hands. And God is saying, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so there's a sad and deadly irony in this moment. Look at the final thing that Jesus says, verse 10. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, but you say, and then he begins to explain this practice of korban. Now what they're actually doing is invalidating the word of God. They're invalidating the word of God. So let's make sure we understand God's command. There are two parts here that Jesus quotes. The first is Exodus 20, verse 12. That's one of the big 10 commandments. Honor your father and mother. The second quotation comes from Exodus 21, verse 17. And, and after God gives those Ten Commandments, a good deal of the Pentateuch and even Old Testament, some of those stories that are given in later books help us to understand and explain the commands. Well, one of the things that the, the Lord had given Moses to pass on to the people, Exodus 21, 17, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. You see, that's, that's the, the negative statement. Failure to honor may look like reviling your mom and dad. You do that, you want to know how serious it is? It's a capital offense. What, what was their tradition? Well, this tradition of korban, of giving a gift to God, 
uh, you can find some of the roots in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks of a man vowing a vow to the Lord or swearing an oath uh, to bind himself by a pledge, Numbers 30, verse 2. He shall not break his word. And so what's happening here, though, to cast it in its context, is that the Pharisees and scribes were actually instructing people, so if you designate a portion of your financial resources as korban, a gift to God, it doesn't mean that it actually goes to the temple or to the local synagogue at that particular point. It just means that you've kind of reserved that. Now, the individual who made that vow could still use that personally, um, there are all kinds of options that are available, but what they were saying is, if that man suddenly realized, you know what, mom and dad need some help in their old age, their medical bills for us, or things didn't go well on the farm this year, and they are near bankruptcy, so I need to take a portion of those funds and, and bring blessing and honor to my parents, these Pharisees and scribes would have actually said, no, because you, would, you are breaking a vow to God. Find another way to care for your parents, or just let them kind of go on their, on their own way. Jesus is aware of this practice, and so he confronts it. So in this hypothetical situation proposed by Jesus, if the son declared his property korban to his parents, he neither promised it to the temple nor prohibited its use to himself, but he legally excluded his parents from the right of benefit. And, and Jesus steps right in the middle of this and says, you, you actually invalidate the command of God when you do this. You make void. So they've actually, even though they supposedly have given their lives to the word of God, they actually make it of no value or no authority. And again, this is part of this sad and deadly irony. Their efforts to be true to the law of God and to guard the law of God have resulted in annulling the law of God. Functionally, they have said, no thank you to the word of God, laid it to the side, and they said, we know more about this life than God himself. Can I pause and just say this is one of the reasons it is so important for us to be people of this book. It's so important that you read it and know it and understand it for yourself. One of the great blessings of being involved in this uh, 4M men's Bible study that we have going, and there are three different groups that have been meeting for, uh, what are we up to now, nine weeks, ten weeks, I think, we have three to go, is that when we gather, and we experience this in our group Wednesday night, we, we have certain scriptures that we study related to very important topics, and then we get together, and part of what we do each time we gather is to talk a little bit about those scriptures, what, what was meaningful to us. Sometimes we have questions, and so we ask one another, could, could you help or give some insight? And Wednesday night, I'm sitting there listening to a couple of the guys share some of the things, and I'm thinking, I read those same verses a week ago, but that thought never entered my head. That is grand, powerful, thank you. I mean, there's this sense of when we come together as people of God with our Bibles open to his word, and we share the things, um, it... It matures us, it develops us, it deepens us. It's exactly what God intended. So it's a reminder that we should do this personally, but we should also do this together. Most heresies that the church has dealt with through the ages are the result of one guy going off by himself and saying, well, I think the Bible means this. 
And if he were humble enough to just ask a few people around who also had their Bibles open, he might have avoided a heap of personal trouble. There are entire groups that have developed because one person basically said, I know it. I know it myself. I don't need anybody else to tell me what the Bible means. There's such a great benefit and blessing, but it does come back to this point. We need to be people of this book. God's word is authoritative. The fault is not in the commandments, but in a tradition of interpretation that no longer saw God's big points. And while these religious leaders fastidiously wash their hands as an act of ritual holiness and monitor the actions of others as they were doing with Jesus' disciples, Jesus pulls off the mask of hypocrisy and he he exposes a serious sin and a grievous evil that these religious leaders were actually promoting against parents in this specific case and in violation of the fifth commandment. They pride themselves on being keepers of the law. They're breakers of the law. And so are we. You know, one of the tests of of your understanding of God's grace and his gospel is how how do we respond to stories like this? And and I'll tell you, honestly, there's a mixture of responses probably in every one of our hearts. Part of us is just scandalized by this, isn't it? And we're like, those men. Oh, so self-righteous. Yep, they are. But shouldn't there also be a response in our souls that actually feels pity for them? Because in so many ways, they're sincere, they're zealous, they're committed to what they've always been taught, and what they really believe at, at the core of their soul is truth. But they're so far off, they're actually standing at the mouth of hell, ready to lose their souls if their creator doesn't give them one more heartbeat and one more breath. They need Jesus. Some of you read this story, and this is part of my background too, that I I share a lot with my friend Rick. I've been in that place where I thought that my whole Christian life was about keeping lists and making sure I avoided certain people and certain groups and certain activities and certain events. And it was all about these lists and it got increasingly complex because in certain contexts you could do this or say that, but in other contexts you couldn't do that or you couldn't say that. And then if you were friends with this person who was friends with that person, well, that was problematic, not because this guy's so bad, but because he's friends with that guy and we worry about him. And, and you start losing your mind in that saying, Jesus... Please come and clear this deadly complexity away. So while I can't say that my experience is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were dealing with, there, there are things about this, this chapter even that cause my soul to shudder and tremble just a little bit because I'm like, man, I've, I've, I've been them. And if truth be told, I'm still them in some ways. And so are you. And the same thing that Jesus says to these people is what he's saying to every one of us this morning. I know who and what you are. 
I know exactly what you are. And if you are willing to take off the mask, I'll not only receive you as you are, I'll change you into what you should be. But as long as you keep a mask on, Jesus' message stops right here. And at this point, and this is only half of the gospel, but it's the weight of the law as it brings condemnation. And anyone who stands humbly before God, or even kneels humbly, maybe that would be more appropriate, and says, I'm a hypocrite, I'm a lawbreaker, I don't honor my father and mother as I should. I'm more intent on keeping my traditions than I am valuing and practicing your word. Lord God, I'm a wreck. Any person who says stuff like that, oh, Jesus has so much grace and mercy and love to extend to you. But if you continue to play a role, if you continue to masquerade, he'll let you just kind of stay right there. I wonder if Jesus is tugging at your mask this morning. You feel it. And in your soul, you're terrified of this thought. I'm a hypocrite. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That he would never expose you just to leave you lost, alone, helpless. He would actually pull that mask off that he might heal you. I love the words of Psalm 51. This is David's prayer after he has been confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin of adultery and murder. I can't put the whole thing on the screen for you, so I'm just going to put verses 1, 2, and 7. But his prayer begins with these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then verse 7, purge me with hyssop. And hyssop would have been a, a branch of a plant that the, that the priest in Israel would dip in the blood of the sacrifice and symbolically sprinkle it on sometimes articles uh, that were there in the tabernacle temple, sometimes on people. It's a symbol of blood cleansing. We don't dip hyssop branches in labors of blood any longer because Jesus shed his blood. So there's a powerful illusion there. Purge me with hyssop. And the point is, in our day and age, it would be sprinkle me with the blood of Jesus. And notice the next words, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Does Jesus have the desire and the power to make murderers white as snow? Oh, yeah. Adulterers? Oh, yeah. But he's not asking you to wash your hands and make yourself clean in this way. He's saying, come to me. I will make you clean. Some of you need to stop the hand washing because it's not helping. And you need to come to Jesus in this way and say, purge me, wash me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Is there a contradiction today between what you appear to be before others and what God really knows you to be? You need Jesus. Let him, by his powerful sacrifice on the cross, his powerful cleansing blood, 
this powerful promise of eternal life. Let him make you whole, one person. Not a secret you and not a public you, just you. Are you a religious hand washer? Or are you a true follower of Jesus? He's calling you to stop living those two lives and to follow him. Will you? You could take the words of Psalm 51 and make them your own right now and just say, oh God, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He knows exactly what you've done. He, he, his list is actually longer than your list. But he's willing to blot out all of it. And if you will say, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sin, he will. Make you clean. Make you whiter than snow. Father, would you just pull the mask off of each of our souls right now? Cause us to see Jesus in all of his love all of his power to forgive, his power to cleanse. We renounce our futile attempts at hand washing. We, we have many ways and methods for doing that. And for some of us, it's led us into this place of, of deep frustration. There's kind of a spiritual complexity that we live with as we try to keep track of all of our lists and our responsibilities and while we may think that we are honoring you, we are actually far from you. God, rescue us today. So Lord, seal to our hearts your word of truth. Show us your love. Work your great mercy throughout this congregation. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.